Welcome to Next Economy Now. The goal of this podcast series is to highlight the leaders who are taking a regenerative, bioregional, equitable, democratic, racially just, and whole systems approach to creating the new economy. Hello, this is Erin Axelrod, a partner here at Lyft Economy, and I'm joined today by Iris Brilliant. Iris is a money coach who guides wealthy people who are confused about what to do with their money to create a deeply liberating vision and plan for their wealth, lead values-aligned lives, and help fund social justice. She brings expertise in social justice philanthropy and investing to offer a safe, compassionate space for people to heal their shame, confusion, or anxiety about money. And she wrote an amazing guide called How to Create Safety and Security Without Accumulating Wealth. Without further ado, Iris, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Erin. Well, I'm so delighted to dive in with having you share a little bit of how your work first came about and how did you get to where you are today? Great. Hi, everybody. I'm Iris, as Erin mentioned, and I, yeah, most people don't know what a money coach is, let alone an anti-capitalist money coach. So I came to this work through being the first person in my family to be raised wealthy, but coming from a fairly political family that really values social justice, really values racial justice, and and being predisposed to getting politicized at a young age. I had some formative experiences in getting to see how classist and racist various financial institutions were at a young age, which began when I inherited money from my mom's uncle. When I was 22, I graduated debt-free from college and then inherited more money than anyone else I knew at the time had. I remember sitting down with my financial advisor, their financial advisor, who they then kind of handed me over to, to discuss investments. And he basically suggested that there's two types of people, right? There are people who care a little bit about some things. They care a little bit about the planet or certain communities. And then there's people who don't. And what I mean by that is he asked me if I wanted any screens on my investments in terms of war and prisons and climate destruction and things like that. To me at the time, it was a it was a no-brainer to put on screens to create a so-called socially responsible investing fund. But that was a, a really politicizing moment for me that it was even, I didn't understand until that moment that our default assumption with our investments is that unless we do the work to create screens or to find someone who will create a values-aligned portfolio, we will inherently most likely be invested in oil and war and prisons, which was a very upsetting moment for me at the time after having been deeply politicized in college around racial justice and capitalism. I was suddenly invested in corporations we had been organizing against, invested in corporations that had sweatshop labor. That was something I was involved in in college, among a lot of other crimes that I was horrified by. So once the money was in my name, I felt a moral calling to do something about the money and was overwhelmed, had no idea what to do. Thank God there was Resource Generation, which is a national nonprofit that organizes young people with wealth to support the redistribution of land, wealth, and power. Please check them out if you are a person with wealth under the age of 35. And they really helped me. They helped me figure out a language 
a methodology and a framework of how to align inherited wealth with social justice values. And I fell in love. You know, I just, I felt that tingling feeling in my body of purpose and of belonging. And I knew I'd found my people of other radical, progressive, rich people, predominantly queer people in that community too. So I joined staff at Resource Generation and worked there for five years and just continued to fall in love with this work because this work to me is deeply hopeful. It demonstrates that our broken economy not only is failing poor and working class and middle class communities, but on a spiritual level, it is also failing rich people, which might sound sad or discouraging, but to me, I find hope in that because it means we're actually on the same team. We all have something in it for us in transforming the economy and in wealth redistribution. Anyways, then I left RG to become a coach because I wanted to do a deeper dive into the feelings, into the emotions, the stories, the perspectives, the values that keep money locked in place. There are limits to how we can support rich people to redistribute if we leave out the emotional piece. And I believed and found that coaching, creating a one-on-one space or couples or group spaces in a coaching framework will help people to not only make a giving plan and give away some money, but to also radically rethink who we are and what we want our lives to be and therefore create even more radical possible financial plans. So I started my business. I'm coming up on my four-year anniversary, (laughs) just very, I put it in my calendar and that's, that's my story. Congratulations on that milestone, Iris. Thank you. And I love that hopefulness. I'm curious if you could share more about an initiative or a moment recently that is exciting to you. What, what is exciting to you? What's hopeful coming up? In particular with my work? Yeah, with your work or even what you're seeing out in the world. What I find hopeful in, I'll start with my work, is the moments when I get to see clients connect the dots between their own redistribution and their own realignment of investments with something that will feel deeply fulfilling and meaningful for them, right? So much of the time in institutional philanthropy, we're taught that Uh, giving away money to other people makes us a good person, but also creates this kind of distance between us and the other. And so I've had some moments recently with clients who not only have quadrupled their giving or, you know, increased it 20 fold or whatever it might be, but are also like, can't wait to give away the money and to receive how fulfilling that's going to be. So that's, that's one thing that gives me hope. There's one client in particular who as a result of going through my most recent cohort is now giving away $9 million and previously felt really stuck and overwhelmed about their money and is now, now told me I need to give away this money by the end of the summer. I like, I can't, I need to do this yesterday. I can't wait to do it. And that, that always gives me hope when I get to experience and witness moments like that in the world, I'll give some shout outs to things that give me hope in particular with investing, I feel inspired by models that pay back co-op owners and business owners before trying to give a profit to investors, to folks like Potlicker Capital, who I recently got to meet, 
and the Real People's Fund in the Bay Area and so many other amazing groups and institutions that are prioritizing workers and prioritizing small business owners in getting to have self-determination in their business's future without the stress and pressure of needing to create an extractive profit for investors and also for rich people in particular who don't necessarily need to see that profit. I am also inspired by and excited about the next egg, which I know you, Erin, are a co-initiator slash co-founder of, which is offering frameworks and models for how to radically rethink retirement in less of an individualistic extractive way. Those are some things that give me hope. Awesome. Could you tell us a little bit about the leadership that you've contributed in the form of that piece that you wrote, how to create safety and security without accumulating wealth? Yeah. So the piece Aaron is referring to is an article about breaking the vicious cycle of wealth accumulation and radically rethinking safety and security. And the little visual that's on there with the arrows came to me initially, as so many things do on like a frantic scrap of paper when I was just having a moment of trying to connect the dots of these really consistent themes and patterns I see with my clients and within myself and within my own bio family around how isolation functions and is a necessary foundation for wealth accumulation, endless, needless wealth accumulation and addiction to money. If it wasn't for the isolation piece and if it wasn't for segregation too, right? Class and race segregation. I just don't believe that we as humans would want to accumulate endless wealth. That's my spiritual and political belief. I I approach this work with the assumption that all people are inherently compassionate and loving and curious. And it is only because of the oppressive society we live in that we would ever behave in these absurd ways, such as hoarding hundreds of millions of dollars that we don't need when other people desperately need that money. So I wanted to put forth something that would kind of explain why we as rich people are so called to and conditioned to hold on to money in a compassionate framework. So without justifying our behavior, but to also support us to have a bit of context that this isn't an individual problem. This is a collective problem and it requires holistic solutions. As I was saying before, we can't just, well, it's rare that someone will wake up one day and give away all of their money. I'm sure that might happen, but I've never really seen that in my life. What it really takes is so many moments of deep emotional unpacking and engaging and grappling with our identity, with the assumptions that we hold about wealth, equaling safety. I also wanted to offer a hopeful vision about how it's that fine line of hopeful and scary, maybe, right? We're living in a crumbling and scary stage of late stage capitalism and climate chaos and destruction. And so we really can't rely on the old paradigms around finance anymore. So there's something in it for us about getting to part. When I say us, I mean those of us with more money than we need. I want to inspire and create hope that as we redistribute wealth and as we include more people in the group of people that we care about, we will be creating more safety for ourselves. So I wanted to just create some hope and inspiration. I hope I made sense. I kind of 
kind of went off there. I get really excited about this topic, but it, it, it came to me when just in a moment of connecting some of those dots and trying to, to make sense of the absurdity that, that we're dealing with and the absurdity that, that lives within me too. Right. I am also feel those feelings. So. Amazing. And just for the listeners, I want to read out what, what this image was that you referenced. It's titled The Vicious Cycle of Wealth Accumulation. And there's just these little statements around that saying things like, the more money we hold on to, the less we seek out reciprocity and community support. The more isolated we become, the more we use money to solve our problems, the more money we feel we need to be okay and back to the more money we hold on to. And it was interesting for me hearing you ask the question or make the statement, those of us with more money than we need, because you work with high net wealth individuals, but I see this on more of a global scale too, when we look at climate justice, that there's a number of people in the U.S. who would not be defined as high net wealth individuals, but have more money than we need. And so I'm asked, I'm curious about how those, how you think about what you wrote as it relates to not just high net wealth individuals, but others who may have the privilege of access to clean water straight out of the tap or abundance of food or disposable income to buy boundless consumer goods. How, how do some of those same things apply at large? Yeah, absolutely. I think any of us who are just thinking about ourselves individually, or even a small nuclear family as our only, as the extent of our care and concern about the world, are in a fragile position. And those of us who have really strong networks and communities where mutuality and care, collective care, are centered, we'll have more safety in the long run. So regardless of your current class status, regardless of your current income, I think each one of us, it's very rare that one of us is born into that type of strong community that's interconnected and and embodying collective care, at least in this country, it's pretty rare. Most of us need to fight for that and figure out how to make it happen, be it joining one or creating one or just trying to find something for ourselves. So I do think that is relevant to everyone. I also just think the question of, you know, if we were to look back a hundred years from now at this really critical time in history, I think each one of us, especially those of us with social justice politics and values would like to believe that we contributed something towards the, the turning tides in society, hopefully turning towards the side of justice. I think that's what we're all rooting for. So rather than having a scarcity mindset or a comparison mindset about, well, I'm not high net wealth, so I don't have a role to play. I would encourage everyone to assume you have roles to play, many roles to play, and for us to all give it all we've got so that in the future we can look back and be proud of how we participated in this time. So be it money and be it skills and resources, be it also just your love, right? I don't mean to be cheesy, but you showing up with an open heart to your relationships and supporting people and 
being a loving figure in people's lives is also an incredible contribution and participating and, and offering your time to movements and projects who hold out a vision you feel inspired by. All of these are really important contributions as the money might ebb and flow in many of our lives. Amazing. What are a couple of initiatives that you're working on or projects that are helping to grow the next economy or to grow this vision of a a more just and resilient future? Well, personally, I'm really excited that I'm going to start investing with ReValue, which I want to give a shout out to. They are an investing firm that really focus on making investing and more radical investing accessible to people of all class backgrounds. And you can invest in co-ops and BIPOC-owned businesses and things like that. So I'm personally, on a small-scale level, excited to move money there. Professionally, I am excited about just the, the education that I get to offer to clients about where our money is truly invested and to create a, a non-judgmental and compassionate and also accountable space for us to really grapple with where our money is invested and if it feels aligned or not. I use a tool called Your Stake, which helps us. It's an independent entity that helps financial advisors really examine what's happening inside of any particular mutual fund or corporation. And through your stake, we get to look at what is the CEO to median worker ratio pay, right? So even when we're invested in more environmentally sound corporations, for example, what's really happening economically, what's happening racially, what's happening intersectionally with these various corporations. And then big picture, I'm excited about the, I feel that we're in a moment of shifting towards questioning on a bigger picture scale, especially since Occupy. And then more recently, just since the solidarity economy has been blossoming, questioning the absurd assumption that we should even be invested in these huge conglomerates and corporations that are destroying the planet and and also oppressing us, that we should be investing in them and gambling our futures by owning shares in these companies. And that that is somehow the way to then retire when we're 65. So I'm really excited about that that turning tide of how we're questioning investing big picture. And again, shout out to the next egg who's doing a lot of work at helping create frameworks around how to rethink retirement. So those are some things. What is keeping you up at night? What are things that our listeners should be watching that are maybe scary in this space? Hmm. So oh, when I read the question, I wasn't sure if it was keeping me up at night in a good way or a bad way. <laughs> <laughs> so in more of a bad way. The 2024 election in the United States keeps me up at night. I up until recently was a have been a donor advisor for Movement Voter Project and help advise donors on moving money towards in particular the 2020 election and then the 2022 midterms. And our founder, Billy Wimsat, you know, we were so amazed we moved $100 million in a year to predominantly BIPOC, very small grassroots organizations in the Midwest and South in battleground states, which to me was a staggering amount of money. And our founder, Billy, kept saying, we actually need to move like at least 10 times this amount, if not more. And we barely won that election. We barely won So what keeps me up at night is how are we going to scale 
funds to feel incredibly confident about all future elections at getting increasingly progressive and having more wins on every level. So yeah, United States politics keep me up at night as one thing. I'm still losing sleep over the IPCC report and of feeling this massive kind of deadline and high stakes pressure around the need for us to radically transform society in order to have a viable future with climate, especially you and I are from fire season, fireland in California, which is now on fire for, I don't know, a quarter of the year. So starting to feel the impacts of climate change and feeling, yeah, uncertain about how much time do we actually have and what does that really mean, right? What is what's left there for us to transform? So those are some things. It struck me earlier in this conversation part of what you're doing is really helping people redefine security and redefine safety. And I'm curious in your own personal life, how that has shown up. If you'd be willing to share, are there decisions that you've made personally that have helped you along that redefining, reimagining security? Yeah, absolutely. So one thing I did recently was I did leave California, which was very sad for me. I'm from the Bay Area. I've lived there almost my entire life. I love the Bay Area. And both personally as someone who has asthma and felt distraught about fire season, and also someone who absurdly can't afford to buy land there, which again is wild to me given my amount of privilege I decided to leave California and move to Minneapolis, move somewhere that has water, move somewhere that is more affordable, and also move somewhere where people aren't stuck in transients because so many of my friends and community members kept leaving the Bay Area because it wasn't affordable and also because of fire season. So while, of course, we don't know exactly what the future holds for any particular region, I wanted to, I was willing to upend my life for the sake of having some sense of future that I could build towards that felt, yeah, more, more grounded and more stable, which of course came at a cost because again, I'm still grieving. If you can't already hear that in my voice, I would also say personally, my friendships and my community is at the forefront of my life. I, the, the levels of trust and connection and intimacy in a really broad just deciding to build out community and not want to do the tiny nuclear family thing is a really core value of mine that has meant that I do feel a lot more safety in the world because I know that there's so many people who've got me pretty much unconditionally, which is probably the best part of my life. Beautiful. Those are some of the folks that will go ahead and read this document. We'll see you have, you kind of, break down a number of these solutions, the pillars of true safety and security, and they include things like self-trust and that community building, that community connections, asking for help. What a, what a, what a concept. <laughs> and then Still working also, on that. <laughs> and then also, you know, useful practical skills that you can always offer to the community, um, which I really love. So thank you. I, I, I really find that what you've contributed is, is very additive as well to this space. What is 
next for you in terms of like looking ahead with your coaching, with growing your business? What? Yeah. Yeah. So what's next for me, excitedly, I'm taking a month off work for the first time in my adult life, (laughs) which I'm so excited about. Again, connected with the themes of retirement, feeling inspired to not wait until I'm 65 to get to live a balanced life. So my number one goal this year is taking a month off work and not checking email. You can hold me to that. In addition, I'm working on a book. I won't share too much, very beginning stages, and I'm going to have to learn how one writes a book. I've never done that before, but it will be on the same themes of engaging with money, managing emotions related to money, figuring out how we want to make really sound financial decisions in addition to some guidance around what to do when you inherit wealth. So that will be coming later on. And I am studying internal family systems work. I'm currently in a year-long training studying IFS. And I've already been bringing that framework into my coaching with clients. And I yeah, expect to see workshops and classes and resources that will be shaped more by an IFS model, which for those of you who don't know, without getting too into it, it basically, it offers thinking and methodologies about how to handle just the different voices in our heads that might tell us really contradictory things and how to manage and engage with those different voices, the different parts that live inside of us, how to integrate those in a path moving forward, right? So an example of that, that I often tell clients is I often see this polarized set of voices that show up when people inherit money or have money, which is there's one voice that comes in that's like, give it all away now. I don't want to deal with this anymore. And I want to be a radical activist. Let's just get rid of it. But it's kind of like impatient, right? And then there's another voice that's like, no, let's keep it. We actually need more money. You know, let's let's hold on to it and make more money. And someone will come to me and think that there's something wrong with them because they have these opposing voices or because they're not unified. When in fact, most of us aren't super unified, unfortunately, (laughs) until we really get support around that. So I'm going to be thinking about how to create workshops and tools and guides for the broader public around how to move towards a more integrative path around finance without abandoning yourself, without abandoning your body and without being harsh with yourself. Wow, that is really important work. It's so helpful to to know you're navigating in that direction. Phoenix Soleil, a lift partner, often talks with the lift team about IFS. And uh, we haven't gone as deep as as we should in that. And as it relates to organizations, I know there's a body of work around relating like family constellations to organizations and interpersonal. So, um, and we're also writing a book at the lift. So we're we're collectively writing it as as co-authors of the Next Economy MBA book. So we'll be able to... Maybe we can schedule some co-writing dates. Yes. Yes, that's great. Work on our books together. One other thing I also wanted to mention, something I'm really excited to continue to grow in my practice is offering more couples coaching for couples who are either in cross-class relationships or one person in in the couple inherits money and they want to figure out how to work together as a team to get on the same page around values and around giving and investing. Parts work really comes in handy when you're dealing with two people who have their own set of parts and have their own set of stories and messages around money and helping people communicate more effectively. So that's also something 
I'm excited to deepen. So awesome. Thank you. How can our listeners support you? Well, if you are a person with wealth or you think that you might be wealthy, but you're not sure, I want to ask you to get involved in something with your money. So, and to ask yourself what support you would need in order to align your money with your values and no longer hide potentially from the fact that you might have more money than you need. So be it coaching, be it resource generation, be it moving your investments, whatever it is that you do something. And for those of you who also know people with class privilege in your life, to really encourage folks to ask themselves that same question around what support they would need to align their money with their values. And lastly, for any of us who have money invested in Wall Street, be it, you know, you have a $2,000 retirement account or, you know, 401k, whatever it might be, I want to ask you to, to really try to look at where your money is invested. Just critically grapple with this weird assumption we have that we have to be in Wall Street in order to have a long-term financial future. I understand some of the alternatives might not feel accessible for those of you who are kind of barely scrapping by the concept of, you know, potentially making less money off of your money might not be tenable right now, but at the very least to critically grapple with that idea. It's just such an assumption that most of us never really think twice about and to invest in things like the things that I named Potlicker Capital, Real People's Fund, Seed Commons, Revalue Investing, to join the next egg. There's so many amazing smart people out there who can help us figure out how to move money to solutions, how to move money to places and people that we would be delighted to support more than we'd want to support Walmart and Amazon and uh, <laughs> some of these other corporations that we are invested in. And lastly, to know that if you do not have rigorous screens on your investments, you are invested in weaponry and war and prisons. So to not delude yourself about that. Well put. Well put. Well, Iris, is there anything else you'd like to close us out with, leave our listeners with as we come to a close here? It's been such a such a joy to, to learn from you today. I like the theme you mentioned earlier, Erin, just around hope. And so maybe to just reflect on what, if you were to take on a hopeful stance about our collective future, right? To dare to hope that we might actually have an exciting, equitable future ahead of us that we're going to work really hard towards. What would taking on that hopeful attitude, how would that shift your financial decisions? If you were to move forward with trust and hope, that, that, that we are in fact turning the tides and moving towards a more just society. I generally find that moving from a stance of hope leads us to better choices than discouragement. So yeah, just something to potentially chew on. Thank you so much for that. And for everything you've shared today, Iris, really a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you for having me. Next Economy Now is a production of Lift Economy. To listen to all of our episodes, go to lifteconomy.com slash podcast. That's L-I-F-T economy.com slash podcast. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter at lifteconomy.com slash newsletter. Please also rate and review our podcast on iTunes, 
Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.